I'm going to um, do mine in two parts. First, kind of a series of, uh, kind of an outline look at New York in World War II, and then show some images, partly from the exhibition and partly from elsewhere to illustrate my remarks. First, I just wanted to just make a couple of general comments about World War II to begin with. You know, some of our younger members of our population don't know about World War II, don't know what side the Red Army was on in World War II. It might as well be the Peloponnesian War for all they know. Um, and I think there is an argument to be made for all of us to focus a bit on it. It brought about the deaths of 57 million people, which, which puts it in a kind of a category by itself. It alters national boundaries uh, in Asia and Europe, and indeed, as we know, in China and Japan, and there's still Korea, they're still arguing about over those boundaries that result from World War II. Uh, it leads to the Cold War, and how do you have a conversation with someone about the Cold War if they don't know about World War II, because they're part and parcel of the same thing. Um, and the bitterness around the world. Americans may not know about it, but of course, the Chinese still remember the rape of Nanking and are angry that the Japanese do not acknowledge it, as the Koreans are angry about the Korean comfort women that were recruited or just taken to be uh, uh, sexual slaves for the Japanese army. So those still live in parts of the world. Uh, why do we focus on it now? Um, because the uniformed memory of World War II is ending at the rate of 600 people per day. Um, and even the wives and others are dying almost as fast. Um, and why New York City? Um, because it was the largest city in the world in World War II and had been probably since about 1930. It was the biggest industrial center in the world, not in terms of proportion like Detroit or Pittsburgh or Chicago or LA or many other places in Europe, but because the city was so big. Um, it was and had been the busiest port on earth for almost 100 years or for 75 years or so. So it's not just another harbor where people are putting in. And as Mike Wallace says, when the Dutch come, they notice it's the great harbor on the east coast of the United States. It's the most diverse place on the planet in World War II as it remains in 2013. In uh, all of those different ethnic groups, so many of them had their own position about the war. And we do have a little section in the exhibition on the war before the war. Um, the city is relatively exposed. We know now that the Luftwaffe could not bomb New York City at any point during World War II, but they didn't know it then. And New York City seemed relatively exposed to aerial attack, and indeed it was exposed in some ways to submarine attack, and Mike Wallace mentioned the one incursion actually into the harbor, and um, there were U-boats operating up and down the coast. Um, and then the just a, a little slight aside, if you wrote to your son or husband or boyfriend in World War II, um, you wrote APO New York. You didn't know where he was, you, but you wrote it to New York, and there they are in Queens uh, sorting out millions of, of letters every day. Uh, maybe APO San Francisco in the Pacific Theater, but mostly to New York. And um, 
And I urge you, so I'm going to kind of talk a little tiny bit about the exhibition, but also I urge you, if you have not already seen the exhibition, to take a quick look. Um, it begins, of course, with the cyclotron. Um, one of the things that's happening in New York that's so important is the beginning of the Manhattan Project, which is the atomic bomb. No one knew it until after the war, but it's called the Manhattan Project after the Manhattan Engineer District because it starts at Columbia University in 1939. Uh, and then um, as it ramps up and it moves to the University of Chicago where they have the world's first self-sustaining nuclear reaction on December 2nd, 1942. And then someone has the bright idea that maybe New York and Chicago aren't the best places to be working on an atomic bomb, maybe we need to think about a new address. And uh, then, of course, it moves to other places like Los Alamos and Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and Hanford, Washington, and things like this. But anyway, let's just think about New York. I want to just think about New York and the war and how, in some ways, it changes immediately. The in, Different from today, we have a map there that shows all the military installations in and around the city, um, dozens of them, dozens. Now there's one, and it's only a shadowy form. That's Fort Hamilton, which is on the Brooklyn side of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. The air raid wardens were ubiquitous, and the, brown, the brownouts of the city, not quite blackouts, but thousands of volunteer spotters who learned the shapes of enemy planes never had to use it. Rationing, we rationed many items in World War II. We Ration gasoline, for example, not because we were short of gasoline, but we were worried about rubber and figured if you couldn't have gasoline, you wouldn't use your tires on your car. Um, uniforms, you know, we'll show in a minute um, some illustrations of the war, but now we're talking about Fleet Week and whether or not Fleet Week will occur this year because of sequestering. But, you know, when we do have Fleet Week, especially if you're around Times Square Yankee Stadium, you see all these uniforms. Well, in World War II, the uniforms were all over the place. And we have a painting in Brooklyn Subway, but on Penn Station, where the uniforms, soldiers and sailors, uh, it wouldn't occasion any comment like it would today because every day was Fleet Week. Uh, the city was the uh, home of the largest number of soldiers and sailors in the United States, estimates as high as one million uh, from the city itself, not counting the metropolitan region. And certainly the Whitehall Recruiting Center down at the foot of Broadway was the busiest such place in the United States. And as we point out in the exhibition, um, the women in the war, particularly in this case the waves, the Navy, were entirely trained here in New York City uh, at what was then Herbert Lehman, I mean, what was then Hunter College in the Bronx, it's now Herbert Lehman College, and we have a couple of quite wonderful um, illustrations and pictures of that. Anyway, let me just divide it up into several kind of categories of why New York was important to World War II and why World War II was important to New York. And first of all, um, uh, the American role is, is in many parts the, the role of production. We were the arsenal of democracy. Um, we didn't have the largest army in the world. That would be the Red Army, the German Army. Uh, but we didn't make more stuff than anybody else. Uh, we made 100,000 airplanes in 1944, which was more than the rest of the world put together. No one thought that would ever have been possible. Um, and so when we think about the arsenal of democracy and think about New York City, um, just imagine some of the things that were happening. One is a business that's almost completely disappeared now, and that would be shipbuilding and ship repair. Uh, 
We all think of the Brooklyn Navy Yard, the oldest naval, facility, naval construction facility in the United States. Um, now closed, but opens in the early first decade of the 19th century. And World War II, at its peak, it had up to 75,000 men and women working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, it was the largest such facility on Earth. Uh, it outproduced Japan in battleships. It um, repaired more than 5,000 ships. Uh, it, um, I have a model at home of the battleship Arizona, which was the ship on which World War II began. Now, that was built at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. I think I have an illustration of it. That was sunk at Pearl Harbor. And then also the USS Missouri, on which the formal surrender was signed on September the 2nd, 1945, also built at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. But that obscures the fact that there were many other shipbuilding facilities. For example, the Todd Shipbuilder at Red Hook in Brooklyn. Todd had 38,000 employees in World War II. Well, 38,000 employees is, a, is about three times as many employees as any place in New York State has today in one facility. They made 64 destroyers in World War II, uh, as well as many other things. So uh, it wasn't just the Brooklyn Navy Yard that's important. Uniforms. Brooks Brothers had a contract for a million uniforms, uh, some of which were made in the city. The Norden bomb site in the exhibition, there's a model of this contraption that was on a, a bomber um, and that the bombardier, the lead bombardier, would plug in the airspeed of the plane, the direction of the, the air outside, the altitude of the aircraft, the distance to the target, and it would tell you when to push the button. Um, and it was a top secret operation. We built 90,000 of them in World War II, almost all in Brooklyn. Headquarters were in Manhattan. Here at the New York Historical Society, we have the records of the Norden Company, which also on about August 15th sends a note to all of its female employees, uh, your services are no longer needed, which is another story of World War II. Um, it's uh, penicillin, which is the wonder drug of World War II. Uh, we thought for a long time, it turns out there's only one free lunch in the world. Uh, and that's water, which they've thoughtfully provided. Penicillin, we thought, was free lunch. And every time I ever went to the doctor as a little boy, pull down your pants and you got a shot of penicillin. Now we realize that there's no free lunch either there, and now that built up resistance. But at the time, it was clearly the miracle drug. And 90% of the penicillin was made in Brooklyn at Pfizer. Um, and supposedly every soldier had a vial of penicillin. And we read the casualty rates in the Civil War, and you know that if you were wounded anywhere in your torso or legs, you were most likely to die. Well, in World War II, it wasn't nearly that bad. And there we have wonderful posters that show a, a medic with the helmet and a cross on it, the Red Cross, and leaning over a, a wounded soldier. And the caption is, because of penicillin, he will come home. Anyway, that was a, that's a wonderful New York story. There's also a terrific book about that as well. Uh, airplane, you know, heavy things we didn't make so much of, but in the suburbs we did. The uh, Grumman and Northrop factories on Long Island made uh, fighter planes. The Hellcat fighter was the major naval uh, aerial, uh, flew off aircraft carriers in the Pacific. A Curtis Wright in nearby New Jersey made engines for planes. Um, Steinway Piano made gliders. Um, 
gliders is not something you wanted to be on in World War II because they, a lot of them landed in, Nor in Normandy. And what they didn't realize as much was, first of all, you're, you're landing in pitch darkness, and that's not a good plan. And secondly, they have all these what call hedgerows, which are hedges, but the hedges have been there for about 400 years, and so it's just like going through concrete. And of course, that broke them up. So heavy casualties, but in any case, they made most of those uh, in um, Brooklyn, I mean Queens. Um, aluminum uh, on Newtown Creek. Um, the movies, propaganda, While We Fight, the Frank Capra films were made in, uh, at the uh, Astoria Studios in Queens. Um, and the list could go on and on. Matchbooks, here at the New York Historical Society, they made bandages. Um, uh, just make something. Um, and we did win the war in large case. A second kind of broad theme, and really the most important role of New York in World War II was the port of embarkation. Of course, there are many harbors up and down the east coast of the United States, from Boston to Philadelphia and Baltimore and Newport News and Hampton Roads. But New York was the port of embarkation, and that's what the term was, the uh, port of embarkation, because probably well over 90% of the soldiers going to the European theater of operations passed through the port of New York. So it's not that no one ever went from another port. Um, it's the same as if you go to Ellis Island today and you see a chart of the people who come through New York City. And then you see, well, down here, you know, Baltimore and Angel Island and New Orleans. And all of the rest of them added together wouldn't be up 10% of the number that goes through Ellis Island. It's sort of like that in World War II. What happened would be that the troop trains would come into the region, and some would come to a place called Camp Shanks, which is just south of the Tappan Zee Bridge on the other side of the river, or Camp Kilmer, which was not far from New Brunswick, New Jersey. And these temporary military facilities with kind of Quonset, not Quonset hubs, but cheap uh, construction, could house, in the case of Camp, Kil Camp Shanks, 46,000 people. And you would stay there for a week, 10 days, maybe two weeks, um, to get the, the regiment of the division together, um, and then be sure everybody's got their helmets and their duffel bags and their shots and have filled out their wills and everything else. And, have a few days liberty, uh, where else but in Manhattan. Um, and we'll come to that in a second. Uh, but that's a very important a part of the New York story. And then they would um, head to the, the ships. Um, we have very few pictures that we do have a few. But nobody wanted to waste their camera uh, on the rear end of the guy in front of them. or on Because pictures filmed in was like, you know, now we just digitally, we take it, doesn't make any difference. But, then it was like 30 cents a click. That was big money. And uh, film was rationed, and there were signs all over the place that said no cameras. So if you had a picture to take, you were more likely to take it of your wife or girlfriend or child than of some gray ship that didn't have a name on it. So that's one of the reasons we have relatively few pictures. But we know that they left from here and that soldiers were there. Um, the, um, the harbor, what would happen would be the Ships would gather in the harbor, uh, 30 ships, 50 ships, 70 ships, oil tankers, transports, uh, just ships carrying guns and tanks and jeeps. 
And they would wait because what we decided to do, and Japan did not decide to do in World War II, was to convoy. Big mistake for the Japanese, but the idea was if ships were together, they were, had a better chance of survival, especially if they had a few destroyers around them that were submarine killers. Um, if they were together, they had a, a better chance if they, than if they were by themselves. Um, and they would then disappear uh, one morning. You would wake up and they would all be gone. In fact, in this little book that we have in the bookstore here called uh, World War II in New York City, we recount the story of, um, of a person whose mother and father um, he was, a, he was in the Navy, and she was a teacher in uh, Wisconsin. And she caught a train to New York because she knew he would be here for three days. And they spent three nights at a hotel, uh, I think the St. Regis on the east side, and had a wonderful time. And then um, late, late one night, she and a whole, after she had said goodbye to her husband, they all got together and rode a bus to Perth Amboy in New Jersey and walked out to the end of a long pier where you could see the ships leaving with their lights out, but they knew that what was happening, they didn't know what ship their husbands or lovers were on. Um, there's the, um, and we have a kind of a mock-up of uh, what a convoy would look like, and we have the little model ships of the different sizes, the destroyers long and skinny. Um, but it, it's a, it kills submarines because it shoots out depth charges, which are these look like oil barrels, and they'd fire off the back. And they're programmed to explode at certain depths, and we have one there. Um, and I should say in passing that the most dangerous, um, the most dangerous single service of any nation in World War II was U-boat service on the German Kriegsmarine. More than 70% were killed in World War II. So, um, and many, many hundreds of U-boats were sunk. It took a long time. Uh, in fact, as late as the spring of 1943, we were losing the Battle of the Atlantic um, because they were sinking ships faster than we could build them. But then in the late spring of 1943 and fall of 1943, mercifully, just before we began to send large numbers of soldiers to North Africa and England, uh, we gained supremacy in the North Atlantic, and so we lost relatively few soldiers. Easy for me to say, if you weren't in the Merchant Marine, the Merchant Marine was devastated, because even though the U-boats could get to the East Coast of the United States, and outside New York Harbor, and up and down the East Coast, and they in fact sank more than 100 ships. In fact, Admiral Donitz pulled them back because he felt it was an inefficient use of their resources because it took so much time, because the U-boats were really slow, uh, to get to North America, that it was better to hold them back toward Europe and wait till the plane, the ships came to them than send them over here. Um, wonderful new book about engineers of World War II that tells this story really very, very well. Um, another part of the embarkation story is the great ocean liners, which played a major role in this, the Queen Elizabeth and Queen Mary especially which were the greatest ocean liners in the world, along with the Normandy, which was French, and the Normandy we'll show a picture of in a minute, but which we were converting as we converted the Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth to camouflage, and instead of carrying 2,000 passengers, or actually a little less, they could carry almost an entire infantry division, 15,000 soldiers, not counting the crew. And of course, the way they did that was stacking people up, sleeping at, you know, five on top of each other, so when you roll over, your elbow hits the bottom of whoever's on top of you, and they feed people like 24 hours a day because there's no room in the restrooms. 
Um, anyway, that's the big story. And of course, the risk there was those ships went by themselves um, because they could go so much faster than a U-boat, whereas the transports, the troop ships could not go so fast. And um, none was ever attacked by a U-boat. It would have been the greatest sea disaster in human history by a factor of three or four if one of those ships had been torpedoed. There was no way you could put lifeboats to, to hold 18,000 people. It just wouldn't, you wouldn't have room for the people if you put that many lifeboats on it. So never shot, but they would just go so fast that the U-boats couldn't catch them. But the Normandy, which we were, we were refitting for troop ship duty, uh, was at the dock in New York and caught fire. And actually it was sunk by the New York Fire Department. I love the New York Fire Department. <laughs> but um, they put so, much water, put so much water on it that, that it rolled over. Um, and um, they put out the fire, but the ship rolled over. So, um, and the question was, was it sabotage? Because it's clearly a win for the Germans. Uh, but probably it was an accident of a blowtorch and mattresses and a mistake. Anyway, it's part of this larger story of the, the port of embar embarkation. Um, and then another theme, of course, is the best liberty town. Um, it had the reputation of being the best liberty town. Uh, you might get a 24-hour pass or a 48-hour pass or maybe if you're really lucky, a 72-hour pass to come into New York City, have liberty wearing your uniform most of all. Uh, they were all sorts of forms of entertainment. Um, one of the most popular were the stage door canteens, the most famous of which was on West 44th Street in the theater district, where people like Ethel Merman and people like that would actually serve these. If you had a uniform and you got in free, everything you wanted to eat was free, entertainment was free. And, they had, and then they had all these young women who were recruited for this task. Um, um, not as comfort women for the Japanese army, but as, as companions to sing a song about Kansas or wherever. They were not supposed to, um, well, certainly not uh, go home with any of these guys, but not supposed to really have romantic attachments, although many did. And many did get married on the, after this experience at the stage door canteen, but there were many of them. There were also USOs. You could get free tickets to... Uh, many kinds of places, baseball games and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure it's still the case today. There's a USO office in Times Square. Um, and just to walk around, I mean, most of these people never, well, obviously most of them have never seen a place the size of New York City. Um, and then, of course, there was prostitution. We don't make a big thing out of that, but we're sure that these people who were leaving for they know not where and know not when or whether they come back, um, this is the big city. Um, and uh, so there were posters about don't swap a few minutes of pleasure for the pain of syphilis and gonorrhea and stuff like this was the warning posters. I'm not sure how they effective they were with 19 or 20 year old guys. Um, and there are cartoons about what happens is you go ashore, you see the girl, the next minute you get sick and then you're in the, the line, the line of shame uh, the next week to get your shots to penicillin, I guess, uh, to cure whatever ailed you. Um, but romance was a really big part of the, of the war, and separation and longing. And I think New York, <clears throat> obviously there's romance and longing everywhere in the country. New York was a little bit different because, first of all, it's so much bigger than every place else, so you're going to have more of it. But secondly, it was, um, it was the end of the line. So if a woman had followed her husband or friend to the city, um, 
you're not going to follow them anymore after you're in New York. So this is the end. Um, and then it, because it had the great train stations, my favorite picture in the, the book is a soldier saying goodbye to who appears to be his wife in Pennsylvania Station in 1943 and absolutely does not need a caption because anybody can look at that one picture and know the story. And then the story of, of gender and race. I mean, clearly, uh, World War II is important in women's history um, because women play roles in the war that had been relatively unaccustomed to. Of course, they became bus drivers and uh, telephone, not tel but you know, all sorts of, of jobs that men had taken, male delivery people, um, during the war, but they also took jobs actually in industry at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, for example, as welders, the story of Rosie the Riveter. Um, and so that's a very important part of the story. And interestingly enough, the United States and Great Britain um, and Soviet Union all mobilized women as they mobilized their entire economies for World War II. And you can't make history up. Hitler does not want his women to work. They should stay home and have babies. So if you can imagine a country taking on the odds of the three greatest empires in the world when you're a relatively little country and think you can do it without everybody all hands on deck, I mean, it's just crazy, but uh, that's what happened. Of course, they used a little slave labor there, so that helped mitigate that. So, um, But anyway, gender and race, and I think that's an important story, and it's been told a little bit, and there are videos about this and stories about women, of course, after the war, they were. the thought was we might have a depression. We've suddenly got 15 million GIs come back. Um, we don't have need competition for jobs. So they just assume that you're going to go back to um, not working. And then the whole question of race. As Professor Mike Wallace just said, um, um, we live in a racist country, always have. Maybe we always will. Uh, World War II, uh, here we are fighting. Um, dictatorships, uh, Mussolini and Hitler and then Hirohito, but the Japanese were every bit as racist as the Germans were, still are. Um, and um, it seemed a little contradictory that we are fighting uh, these racist regimes and yet we have such obvious racism here at home and obviously that didn't go unnoticed by civil rights leaders, but there's John Morton Bloom wrote, Bloom wrote a book called Be Was for Victory talks about how German prisoners of war in Kansas could go in and get a cup of coffee, but black GIs who were guarding them could not. I mean, you can't make this kind of stuff up. There was another uh, occasion we read of, of coming soldiers and sailors and airmen coming back, and Tuskegee airmen coming back, uh, being thrilled by passing the Statue of Liberty and all the welcomes home, and then they get to the gangplank and going down, and somebody said about niggers to the right, white people to the left. I mean, so it wasn't ended just in World War II. But here in, um, here in the United States, there were some outbreaks, the worst of which was in Detroit in 1943. But there was one right here in New York, in Harlem, also in 1943. And if you go to the exhibit on the back hall, right actually behind me here, there's some illustrations of that a conflict that took maybe six lives. Um, there began a rumor about a policeman had shot a black soldier. Uh, a lot of controversy about why. I had a, police records in New York, by the way, are closed. I don't know if you know that, but you can't look at them. Uh, but I had a sergeant in my class a few years ago uh, who had access to the police records. 
he actually said that the, what, that what happened in um, Harlem was that a woman took a room, and then when she got to the room she didn't want it, it cost $4. She wanted to get her money back. And they gave her the $4 back, but somebody wouldn't give her the tip back, which was a dollar, and they began a big commotion, and a black soldier took her side, and somehow a white cop came in there, and the soldier was shot, and rumor was he was killed. Anyway, that started the whole thing. Anyway, my policeman in my class said that she was a prostitute. She had an apartment that she actually lived about two blocks away, and the only reason she was in, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's part of the story. But that's what's so great about history. You can keep working on it, keep working different angles. Um, anyway, that's called the Double V Campaign um, there. And then um, coming home, um, returning to New York, um, in some ways, that's almost as great a story because the soldiers were so desperate to come back. They were supposed to come back in reverse order. So if you went over in 1943, you got to come back sooner than somebody went over in 1944. So they had a record of each person. But everybody wanted to kind of jump the line or I know I'm top for the list, but let me get on this plane. I promise I'll stand up. I won't eat. I'll do anything. I don't need a bed. I don't need anything. Just let me get on that boat. Uh, and when you see the image, the picture, of the troop ship coming back, it looks like a giant anthill. It looks like you couldn't even stand on that boat. There'd be no hope of lying down. Anyway, it's just very, very moving. Um, and then, of course, the end of war. Um, in some ways, the war officially ends when the German high command surrenders to, surrenders to Eisenhower's headquarters. Um, and by the way, we have a facsimile of that. And I think it's the most succinct uh, communique a commanding general has ever made to his superiors. When the German army surrenders, uh, I think on May 8th, May 7th, 1945, the message Eisenhower sends is, the mission of this Allied force was accomplished at 0215 hours, May 8th, 1945. Signed, Dwight Eisenhower. <laughs> Um, but it also, the official end also is signed on, as I said, on the battleship in Missouri. But when we see the end of the war, we see Times Square. We see New York. We see the crowds uh, on the streets in New York that sort of, you know, when you want to, and of course the sailor kissing the nurse um, at the end of war. Um, and, um, and what I really want to talk about, and I want to go through some slides, is the long-term impact of the war on New York City. In the short term, it seems to be relatively good in the sense that all of its competitors, just think about them, think about them today. Well, Moscow has been decimated by the war. Leningrad, now called St. Petersburg, was literally flattened. Warsaw was the most destroyed city on earth. Uh, Berlin, we don't need to talk about because it was the target of dozens of massive air raids. Uh, Vienna was the scene of street fighting between the Germans and the Red Army, and the great state opera house and others were destroyed. Uh, Tokyo was firebombed so that it almost ceased to exist. And Rome and London and Paris, while not destroyed by the war, those countries were impoverished by the war. And they didn't really have enough to eat in those countries through the end of the 1940s. There was almost starvation, even in the winters. So one of the, I say good news, it's relatively good news, is New York becomes de facto the cultural capital of the world. Maybe it becomes the 
art capital when the German army marches into Paris in 1940, or the theater capital when London is so impoverished, or all the dance capital, George Balanchine, we think of him in the late 1940s. He's Russian, of course, but he comes to New York. And so New York assumes this cultural capital thing. Mike Wallace alluded to the establishment of the United Nations in New York. Philadelphia wanted it desperately and didn't get it. Um, there's relatively full employment. There's this sense that of, of relative unanimity about the war. Um, population peaks. The bad news um, is, I think, takes a little longer to understand, but during the war, there's an enormous growth of military installations in the South and West in the United States. I don't think I need to demonstrate that. I mean, everybody knows Fort Benning, Fort Bragg, Camp Lejeune, uh, all these different places, enormous bases in California and Texas and Georgia and North Carolina. Some soldiers go there and decide to stay after the war. The rise of the military-industrial complex after World War II was, a, I think, an established fact. We began to spend a big amount of money, and, and it begins that trend of where the money is taken out of New York, to, in part because of the military-industrial complex, and sent to other places. The Defense Department in World War II not only decides that corporate leaders should run it for a dollar a year or whatever, and there's Again, there's a book celebrating that. Uh, not saying he's right, but there's a book that does do that. But that part of that was that we paid the corporations to build new factories outside of Detroit, for example. They built a giant tank manufacturing places and outside of other cities and built textile mills in the South. That then after the war, those, those places compete with the cities. Um, the interstate highway system, which is the largest public works project in American history, which starts in 1956, uh, which in some ways is so wonderful, but all you have to do is go to Detroit and see one example of what an interstate, they, they really wanted to solve the problem of deconcentration, and, and uh, too many people in downtown, well, they solved it, all right. Um, nobody there at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and then the hemorrhaging of industrial jobs. New York was, as I said, the leading industrial city in the world as late as the mid-1950s. I don't need to tell you that those jobs have gone poof. Not all of them, 85% of them have gone. You know, the garment district, which used to employ more than 300,000 people, and I remember when they used to push those racks up and down those, in the 30s, west of 7th Avenue. The breweries, they used to be more beer brewed in New York than Milwaukee and St. Louis put together. Gone. I mean, except for some microbreweries in Brooklyn. I'm not counting those. Um, all sorts of, you know, chiclet, think over just over in Queens, the chiclet chewing gum, the steel case filing cabinets, all these kinds of things, which, again, went first to the suburbs, then to the south, then more or less perhaps to Asia. Um, we think of the nadir in New York as hitting somewhere call it from 1960 to um, maybe the late 1970s, when the city loses 800,000 people in the 1970s. There's a gigantic white flight to the suburbs, a huge influx, Puerto Ricans and African Americans from the South and from Puerto Rico. Um, it's not 
all about World War II, but this country does make the decision that for all of those GIs, they should live in the suburbs and they should get government assistance. And I'm not here to say that those programs were all awful, to live in Levittown, to get a GI Bill so that you could go to college, but there was clearly a racist dimension to those. Um, it would have been wonderful because they were, they, people lined up, lined up to get uh, a Levittown house, maybe stayed overnight. Because you know what? You got a new house and you got a Bendix washer and you got a front yard and a back yard and a carport, and it was less than the rent you were playing back in the city. What's not to like about that deal? Well, what we also said is you have to be white. Well, wouldn't it be one of those things you'd like to have seen in history is you could say, well, this is going to be integrated. And you say, well, I don't, want to, I don't want to live with niggers. And you could say, OK, get out of line. Let's see if we can get enough other people to do it. And I'm sure you could have. But we can't make history up. We say history is important, not because we agree with everything that happened or wish it was, or, or think it's wonderful, but because it's warts and all. Um, anyway, um, New York recovered. Um, obviously, uh, that's a whole different story about how New York comes from being a Detroit. Loses, by the way, the Bronx and Brooklyn both individually lose more people than Detroit do, does in the 1970s. So it's not intuitively obvious that we would have turned around or that Detroit would go the other way. But can we put this, some illustrations on very quickly? I've got a few minutes just to, or maybe I've got it here. Let me do it myself. Okay, there we go. Let me just illustrate this very, very quickly before we stop. This is one of those many things which Professor Wallace was talking about demonstrations. Of course, it's tough when you see a little girl saying, don't let my daddy go to war. Um, blowing up, how do you want to be an oil tanker? You want to be on the crew of that? Down in Battery Park, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to stay in one place. Um, um, uh, I think this is being filmed on C-SPAN, so um, I'm a wanderer. I've got to have a leash here. But um, in Battery Park, just where you catch the ferry to uh, Ellis Island, they're these huge slabs. And they have the names of all the Allied sailors and mostly merchant mariners who died in the North Atlantic in World War II. And it is a big, big chart. And one of the reasons was not only if you'd been on this ship, you probably wouldn't have made it anyway. But if you're in one of those convoys and you were torpedoed, your ship, the other ships were under orders not to pick you up. I believe that. Because they were submarines. I mean, obviously, there were submarines around. And the destroyers needed to chase the subs, and everybody else needed to get the hell out of there. So that's when, and the water's cold. Uh, if, that's if you survived the fire or something else. So this was not a happy place to be. Let me see, I've got to do this. Um, this is the Normandy, um, uh, which, was one of the, which was arguably the greatest ship in the world. I mean, they still sell relics, not, you know, chandeliers and stuff. Off the Normandy, it was an amazing ship, and it was totally useless. We finally towed it over to New Jersey to turn into scrap metal. It was never useful or anything, so it was just total loss. This is the USS Missouri being launched at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Uh, in 1944, a year later, it would be in Tokyo Bay. Um, and right now, it's, it's in Pearl Harbor, I think, where you can still visit it. Uh, here's an aerial view of the, sorry, it's not a better picture, but of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. You couldn't get, very, we have a few pictures like this, but not many. Because talk about classified information, this would be big time classified information. To look over the Navy Yard, to see the many ships in the docks and stuff like this. They could be repairing dozens of ships at the same time. And of course, all those sailors, most of those sailors also, you know, they're not going to transfer them to another ship. They're going to be in the city for several weeks at least. 
But the Navy Yard is just an incredible story. You can go there to Building 92. They have a free exhibition there. Um, and they'll Penicillin, um, they're alive today because of penicillin. Um, the USS Arizona, uh, that was made in 1919, but that's the ship that blew up in Pearl Harbor uh, when the Japanese attacked and more than 1,000 sailors died on it. It is alleged and probably true. That ship, you know, just sank in the mud. That superstructure was still, is still sticking out. In fact, when you visit it, you're on the superstructure of the ship, but they couldn't lift it. And actually, many of those sailors lived for as much for weeks and were knocking on the, but they couldn't get them out. How do you, how do you raise a battleship? It's not easy. It's heavy. It's stuck in the mud. Um, we will never see what they wrote and did in that amount of time. Um, so here are some of the things, the, the blackout, the sense that New York was going to be the target number one. That made sense. You know, it's the biggest, greatest city in the world. I mean, why wouldn't they attack it? So there was this real sense of it. Dog tags, you can actually buy some dog tags, can't we, here in the, here in the, in the bookstore, um, the gift shop. Um, this was important because this is, you know, so many soldiers weren't identified. Most of the soldiers in World War I, or many of them. And here I'll point it out about the, the waves uniform. Um, uh, the waves were so much trained here, at, here in the city. These are, held, these are, these are ships on an, on an aircraft carrier. Most of those airplanes would have been made in, on Long Island. Um, this is the Curtis Wright uh, engines made in um, New Jersey. Uh, this is the Norden bomb site. You know, it's heavier than you are, but it's not gigantic. I don't know. It's, you'll see it in the exhibition. Um, um, and it certainly looks clever, doesn't it? Um, um, it looks... Um, by the way, my, my uh, skepticism about this is that Despite our presumed air precision bombing, um, everybody knew where Hitler's Reich's Chancellery was and the headquarters of the German government. We bombed Berlin over and over and over again. Do you know what? The damn building was still standing at the end of World War II. And the Russians blew it up uh, afterwards. So obviously, we couldn't hit as much as we thought we could hit. Um, but anyway, that's another story. Um, but anyway, it went in these bombers. And by the way, another very dangerous place to be, I mentioned German submarines, to be on the air crews flying over Germany. Um, as you know, sometimes they took 20% casualty rates. Usually it was more about 4%, but if you're supposed to fly 25 missions times 4%, where does that get you? Uh, and you know, that's the whole story of Catch-22. If you figured that out, uh, then you were smart enough, you, know, they, you weren't crazy, so you couldn't argue that. So it was a dangerous task. Um, here are more of these airplanes under construction. Here's the cyclotron. As you go into the exhibition, this is kind of the first piece of equipment. Um, I have no idea what they did with that thing, and it's huge. It took trucks and everything else to get it here. Um, but it was, the, it was step one, or maybe not step one, but close to it. Um, and then the teacup at the top from Hiroshima, where they um, dropped the first atomic bomb. And of course, another story is Detroit was the, such a fantastic city after World War II and been so prosperous during World War II. And here Hiroshima was turned to dust. Go to Hiroshima now, and it's one of the glitziest places you'll ever see. And then go to Detroit, and it makes you wonder who won the war. Um, this is that picture that's so incredible. 
You know, uh, actually, I think what they're doing is getting on a ferry to go somewhere. But nevertheless, it's the picture, you know, it's the embarkation. And you see so very few of these kinds of pictures at the time. This is a depth charge. You can't quite see the size of it here. It's a little bit less smaller than an oil drum, but you'll be able to, you couldn't pick it up. But it fires off the back of a destroyer. Um, and here's that picture I was telling you about, about just the sense of Fleet Week. But it wasn't Fleet Week. It was all the time in World War II. This is a Brooklyn... Um, a subway stop, but it would have been nothing to see soldiers and their companions. Um, the booby trap, the one on the left. Um, um, uh, and there's that, there's the, uh, the cartoon. Uh, women are dangerous. Um, and this is the, about the uh, V-mail. Uh, and here's V-mail. Everything that was sent um, in World War II had to, from a soldier had to be read by a censor so that you did not report where you were. Um, and it was called V-mail. Sometimes they photos photo and made it smaller, but then it had to be stamped. Even generals. In fact, I'll tell you a story. I can tell you now because it's been published in a book. This new biography of Eisenhower by Gene Smith. He said, actually the person who gave the story was Garrett Mattingly, who was a famous historian at Columbia. And he was a Navy commander in World War II and a very high censor. And so he read the messages of generals and admirals. And he said he read the message from General Marshall to General Eisenhower that said, if you marry that woman, I will remove you from command. The woman was Kay Summersby, who was his driver. And um, apparently he had asked Marshall if he could marry her. And Marshall, who was as straight-laced as it got, and who President Roosevelt only called him George once. You know, nobody spoke to Marshall that way. And General Marshall refused to ever have dinner with Roosevelt because he thought, that's not my task. I'm working for you. We're not, you know, that's a, so the idea that you get to, that the Supreme Commander would be divorced. No, no, he says, simply, if you marry that woman, I will remove you from command. Signed, George Marshall. No comment, no I'm sorry, no nothing. Just right out there. Uh, by the way, I think Eisenhower was one of the great Americans, so I don't mean to throw off on him. He'd been away for years, and every other general was doing it too. So um, this, is a, this is another picture of Penn Station at wartime painting. Again, you can see the, uh, the soldiers and sailors and, the, in a sense, the military equivalent to it. Um, this is just open. Here's some, here's a little bit of gay, uh, the other story, which I didn't tell, and I don't think uh, Mike mentioned this. During the war, it is alleged that gay soldiers who had been unable or unwilling to come out in Des Moines, but when they got to New York, heard that, you know, there are places in New York that you can go. And George Chauncey and other people have written about gay New York, and so it also had a, a role there in these Liberty Days, um, again, I can't speak with great authority about it, but that's supposed to happen. War Knows No Color Line, here's during the height of the riot. These are pictures, War Knows No Color Line. Um, we were clearly caught in, in some hypocrisy at the time. Um, there, you see right here, it says white, under showers, you see white EM, colored EM, that means white enlisted men, colored enlisted men. That'd be the same kind of sign you could have seen, and I did see, in places like Arkansas and Mississippi in the 1950s and 60s. Exactly the same thing. 
And here's a, we've kind of done this up with the atomic bomb smashes. Here's the Times Square uh, celebration. Well, we need to remember this. Um, does anybody know why this is not a picture of an American military cemetery in Europe? There's no crosses. This, this might be uh, a veteran cemetery. I don't, I don't remember the picture itself. Could even be a British cemetery uh, because the Brits, British cemeteries are especially moving because they are an oval and they allow the family, the wife, the mother, to say something at the bottom. It'll say his name, his death, his unit. And at the bottom, thank God he did his duty or your grave's too far for me to see, but not too far to think of the, the American cemetery, which is a cross of David or, or just a cross, Star of David or just a cross, doesn't have room for that. So it, it doesn't have quite the power. The only thing that you can ever say on that is if you win the Medal of Honor. And what's that, one out of 100,000 or something like that, 10,000. So in a whole cemetery, there might be one person or two persons who won the Medal of Honor. Um, but here's the Brooklyn World War II Memorial. So we do have some memory of it, even though our young people are increasingly unaware of that there was a World War II. Um, and here is uh, Mike Wallace um, mentioned, the, becomes the home of the UN. And by the way, we also have pictures of the coffins being brought back because at um, Omaha Beach in Normandy or at any American, what they call battle monuments, the cemeteries in Europe, uh, which are like the White House lawn, which are beautifully kept and where you have to have died in combat. Uh, the only exception I know is Patton. Patton died in an automobile accident at the end of 1945 and he's buried uh, in Luxembourg at the Third Army and they must have made an exception for him. Um, but anyway, the, the next of kin, meaning the wife or mother, uh, could decide whether the uh, deceased would be buried with his comrades in Germany, or not Germany, but and I don't think there's any battle monument cemetery in Germany, but in Italy or, or uh, Luxembourg or Holland or somewhere like that, or being brought home, and more than 60% bring them home. Anyway, we have pictures, um, I think in the exhibit, certainly in the little book, of the coffins with the American flags on them being swung into the Brooklyn Army Terminal, Bush Army Terminals, right over there by Buttermilk Channel. I think, well... We talked about the city after World War II. Um, there also was the fear that now we've dropped the atomic bomb, cities may not be a good idea. By the way, many people thought that after 2001. As it turned out, it's the reverse. The prices of real estate in the city went up and everywhere else went down. But, you know, you can't read history backwards. Um, but they thought, and I remember, that's in Collier's Magazine, World War III, and what would be Ground Zero would be in the city of New York. And I remember looking at that picture uh, about what it was going to be like. Um, in fact, that may be the earliest picture I ever remember in a magazine saying. Um, because it was so, you know, it was like your life is being taken away from you. Um, but anyway, the, the, it turned out that the future was not that bleak for New York, even though in the short term it, it had some problems. But in the long term, uh, it's done very, very well. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.